are listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert and Jessie Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. Throughout the making of this podcast, one of the questions we've had in the back of our minds was, how did we get here? There are a lot of ways to tackle this question and lots of different moments across time and space that we could use to start the story. One of those moments is the offshoring of manufacturing in the United States and Europe. Sure, there's the relatively simple narrative we often hear. The cost of labor got too expensive. This, combined with advances in logistics, technology, and certain trade policies, resulted in production being moved abroad and the long, complex supply networks we see today. But we wanted to talk to someone who worked for a brand and experienced this transition to dig a little deeper. Which parts of the product development and production processes were brands responsible before the offshoring of production versus afterwards? How did this impact skill sets and knowledge of production process within brands? And how has this shift in knowledge and skill sets affected price negotiations with suppliers? Tara St. James is the wearer of many hats. She's a founder at Resource Library, the United States' first freestanding sustainable textile library, owner and creative director of Study New York, a sustainable women's wear brand made in New York City, and an adjunct professor at the FIT, Fashion Institute of Technology. Perhaps counterintuitively, the starting point of all of these fabulous projects and her own sustainability journey was her first job working for a much more mainstream fashion brand, just as the industry was adjusting to offshore production. If you are on Instagram, please follow us to help us grow the conversation at manufactured underscore podcast. Not much of an Instagram person? We feel you. We have a love-hate relationship with social media, too. Sign up to our weekly newsletter instead on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com, to find out what we're reading, what we're thinking, and what we're wishing. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our homepage. And finally, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe. So um, I guess I can, I'll start in Canada where I was born and raised and studied fashion design um, in Montreal and also started my career in the more conventional uh, denim industry, which was quite big in Montreal. And I worked there for several years. And by that point, um, manufacturing had already been moved overseas. So the company that I was working for had started out by manufacturing a large portion of their jeans in Montreal and then moved those to uh, mainly China. And then while I was there, we produced in India and we produced in Korea, but primarily it was in mainland China uh, with offices based in Hong Kong. So I would travel there four or five times a year. Um, so when I, you know, got to know the supply chain, I could see it set up in our offices because we still had um, sample development and product development, pattern making all in house, um, which is not that common for most most fashion companies anymore. Um, but we would we would send all of our tech packs away to to China for production um, and and development in some cases. 
And tech packs are basically a set of technical instructions that whoever is going to be manufacturing the products needs to have in order to understand customer expectations. So, so that was my very early start. It was very interesting. This was 20 plus years ago. Um, and I was learning how the industry worked as well as learning, you know, how to, how to work in a company to begin with. So that was very interesting as a, as a concept because, um, Montreal, just like New York, used to be a large manufacturing hub for Canada. Um, and I'm sadly, I don't have the, the data for, for Montreal. Uh, but I do for, for New York because I spent more, most of my career working here. Um, but Montreal used to have a lot of manufacturing for textiles as well as finished apparel. There's still some textile companies there um, and still some smaller apparel manufacturers, but nothing like what it was in the 70s and 80s, you know, in the same way that New York produced upward of 90% of America's clothing in that time uh, leading up to the, to the exodus. And now we only see a small remnant of that. Yeah. So I want to backtrack actually a little bit, because when you first entered uh, as a young professional, entered the fashion industry, and it was right at this moment where stuff was starting to production and uh, certain parts of product development were still, were just starting to be moved overseas Often the narrative focuses on wages and labor being cheaper elsewhere and that being the impetus for moving production offshore. And that certainly is part of the picture. But I want to explore with you a little bit deeper some of the other reasons that would have made this move appealing. Right. So it's a, it's a lot of different factors. One being um, the facility of not having to employ a whole group of people to do um, all of these different components versus just having one third party overseas or even a second party, a manufacturer with their own merchandisers do all of that work in a bundled FOB price. And FOB stands for free on board. And what that means is that the seller shoulders all the transportation costs up to the port of shipment. And the buyer, so in this case the brand, is responsible for all the marine freight insurance unloading costs right from the port of loading. And Incoterms certainly have an impact on supplier-brand relationships, but we're not going to get into that explicitly in this episode. But if you want to know more about this, go back and listen to episode five, where we talked to somebody who worked as a freight forwarder. But okay. Tara, tell us more about these consolidated FOB prices and why they were so appealing. The like shiny object that was so appealing to North American brands is they'd been doing things for so long with so much work and effort domestically. And then all of a sudden there was this offer of something that was a, a tenth of the price. And then all the work was also done magically for you without having to right. see it. Right. And so nobody like you pull a rabbit out of a hat. It's like all this thing like you used to. I don't know what a good analogy is, but it's like you I don't know. It's like maybe like you used to people spend hours like baking a cake and then they get these like instant mix where all you have to do is add water and put it in the oven and you're done. Yeah, except you don't even have to add water and put it in the oven. The cake just shows up at your door. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It just gets delivered. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it's it's not even 
it's not even that. It's like the easier step of that. Someone's made it for you to your specifications. So it's it, it was such an appealing um, offer that I think for a long time, nobody wanted to question how it was being done. And in my early stages of, of my career, and I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I never really questioned it. I just took it for granted of like somebody was training me to work this way and uh, introducing me to people that I had great relationships with. You know, the merchandisers were my saviors because they did everything for me, but I never really questioned what their salaries were or what the salaries of the factory workers were. It was another world to me, you know, it was foreign and it was confusing. And I'm like, I, it wasn't my place to question that. Um, mm. And I'm embarrassed to admit that, but it's, it's the reality. And I think it's the reality of a lot of brands, even to this day, because uh, they're just training their employees to follow the lead. Prior to this, I like the way the word you use, the mass exodus. Um, were brands, and it's, I know that there are always exceptions, but were brands mostly doing their own manufacturing? Was the manufacturing done domestically, but still through a third party? So back then, either development was done in-house, so you still had your pattern making um, and your sample room in your in your company. And to this day, a lot of larger brands have that. So you still see that. Um, they they would do everything in-house and then they would transfer all of that to workers in the garment district um, in New York City, which is still very centralized. So of course, there's manufacturing outside of the garment district, but the garment district in New York City is this very small area of midtown Manhattan that used to be undesirable, let's call it undesirable real estate, um, because it was very commercial. And now that is slowly shifting or attempting to be shifted, which is pushing out a lot of the factories. But that's another conversation. Yeah. yeah. So just to, to go back, you, you asked um, if it was all done through third party. Ordinarily not. So ordinarily, there would be mm. somebody in charge of production and product development within the brand who would manage all of those uh, activities, which was the sample development and then product development, uh, purchasing of the fabrics and the trims, all of that would be done separately um, and then be aggregated by this person or this team in the brand um, and, and delivered to the factory with the, the sample and the pattern and a production order. Um, so all of those pieces are being done by a person uh, whereas, you know, of course, it's still being done by a person overseas, but usually that person is, you know, hiding behind an email. And so it takes one person in the company here um, to, to communicate with them versus a whole team of product developers who have to run around the garment districts and collect the trims and collect the fabric and get the pattern ready and communicate with the factory. Yeah, yeah. We, we call it in China, exactly. we call this as a merchandisers and merchandising job. It's exactly like that. One person exactly. follow up. Which is very confusing. Yeah, that's very confusing for, for Americans because merchandising here is a whole different job. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. While, yeah, it took me a while to figure that out. And so those counterparts in Asia did all the work for, for us. So you can see why that would be very appealing as an option. Um, 
to, to send off a tech pack and then have somebody run around to do everything or have a whole team of people run around to do everything behind the scenes. From 50s to um, 70s, let's say, uh, the brands still have all these functions in-house. How about sourcing? They must have sourcing too, right? Yeah, and a lot of them still do have sourcing. Um, sourcing either for production as a complete package or for just the textiles and trims, uh, packaging, things like that. It depends on the brand, of course. But so either there's a sourcing person locally um, and then they work with another sourcing person overseas or a merchandiser or, or you know, whatever the, the name is. Um, but oftentimes those people who were in sourcing were sourcing on a global supply chain. So they were sourcing fabrics from Europe, for example, and trims from possibly Europe as well, possibly domestic. And then the manufacturing, the cutting and sewing was done here in New York. We also are, haven't even addressed the, the lack of skills because at that time, um, and my, my familiarity with overseas manufacturing is mainly China and India, um, other countries a little bit as well, Brazil, um, Taiwan, Korea, but mostly China and India. And in particular, China at that time was really investing in new technology and a very large and robust workforce that was skilled, very skilled. And those skills were rapidly disappearing as a result in New York and in Montreal. Um, and so it was actually very hard and very expensive to find a similar made product domestically with the same um, finishing and quality that we could find overseas when you don't even factor in the price, mm -hmm. you know, and then you factor in the mm -hmm. price difference and there's no rationale behind it, especially when you have to have all of these people working at consolidating the supply chain and getting everything gathered, whether it's physically or, um, you know, by phone. And at that time, again, like I remember one of my bosses. So I started working in 1998, I believe. And I remember one of my bosses telling me the way that he used to, um, <laughs> we used to print a lot of kind of graphic t-shirts and, Uh, in the like early 2000s, the trend was for distressed look of graphics. And um, he used to fax himself the graphic and then rub the paper together and then fax it again so that it would distress on the paper. And then he would FedEx <laughs> that like third or fourth version of the copy. This is before Photoshop, obviously. Um, he would FedEx that, that finished version of the copy to the factory in China so that they could uh, print it for him. Or maybe it wasn't even China. Maybe it was pre-China. But anyway, that was the way things were done back then. So obviously technology wasn't up to par um, and we couldn't just easily communicate things and send them overseas. So things had to be done very, very manually. When, we, when you describe Tara... Um, brands running around to collect trims and to gather materials and then deliver them to a cut and sew factory where they would be assembled. What I read between the lines is that brands were purchasing the raw materials and, in other words, assuming some of the risk 
and some of the costs of production, which is very much in contrast to some of the things we hear today, where suppliers exclusively bear the financial risk and the cost of production up front. In episode three with Pete Holton, he describes his factory as effectively being a bank. And I, I would be curious to learn more about, you know, at what point the shift in um, risk really transitioned? At what point did brands, did many brands stop buying raw materials themselves? And at what point was that responsibility passed to suppliers? Um, If there's anyone out there listening who knows more about this, we'd love to talk to you. It's also interesting because I think sort of in popular imagination, there's this idea that prior to the offshoring of production, brands did their own production, meaning that they employed production staff were directly employed by the brand and that after the offshoring of production they no longer did that but the reality I think is is a little bit more nuanced which brings me to my next question which is how do you think that this shift in structure from having to coordinate all of these pieces quite tediously to then just getting this nice shiny FOB price affected negotiations, price negotiations between brands and suppliers? There's no one formula. So there's Mm. a variety of different formulas in the same way that working overseas has a variety of different formulas. You could be working with like an agent who is connecting you. So you have no transparency or you're working directly with the factory or you're working with a team of merchandisers uh, in a company who have a variety of different factories. So it's a very disconnected in that way too. But in, in New York, you have to control every part of the process. So you buy the trims, you buy, you don't buy the thread, but you would buy the, the zippers and the buttons, the fabric, and you'd have the pattern graded. And then you would deliver all of that to the cut and sew facility. And they would just give you a cut and sew price. So already there's some, there's more transparency about the cost of every element versus when you get like an FOB price or a landed price from an overseas factory and there's no breakdown. And so you don't know. And so it makes it, I think, psychologically easier for the person on the other end of the phone or the email to try to push for a lower price because they don't know what part of that is profit and what part of that is trims and what can be what can be lowered, right? Um, and I think a lot of it too is just trying to lower price for the sake of price, which I think is a huge problem in the industry. And the reason why we have fast fashion and all of these other environmental disaster problems. Um, Sorry, I shouldn't laugh at that. It's not funny. (laughs) You know, it's it's what I've been trying to work against for so many years. And, um, and so, yeah, so I think that that disconnect has become a real problem in the industry because it's, made it so um, it's taken away the personality and it's taken away the humanity from from the sourcing um, aspect of production. The loss of that human contact and also technical, the loss also of that technical understanding of how products are made means that a cost is just a number. And then, like you said, it's it, it completely obscures how much is margin, how much is material, how much is labor, which means that when it's squeezed, there's there's really a high risk of of um, well, like you said, bad bad things happening, both from an environmental perspective and a and a social perspective. If you look at the timeline, so we're talking 40, 50 years now that this has been 
the common practice in the industry. So if you look at that timeline, that's essentially a whole generation of designers and product developers and production managers who have been only working overseas, right? Don't have that knowledge of working locally. And so they don't have the understanding of what it really takes to put into a product unless they're very hands-on. And I know that that is a lot of people, but it's not everybody. Not everybody gets on a plane to travel to wherever their product is being made to walk through the entire process. And even in my case, when I started out in the industry, we would go to Hong Kong to visit the merchandiser's office and sit with them to talk about product development. And then they would show us all of the fabric samples and finishes. So everything would happen in an office. Um which to me is silly because, well, I guess back then we didn't have the technology that we do now. So we couldn't, you know, it wouldn't have been done easily versus over email. Um, it still would have had to be do, done in person. But, you know, I was flying halfway across the world to go and visit an office. And then occasionally we would go visit the factories and see how the jeans were being manufactured, usually just the wash facilities. And that is a whole other side conversation because that's what gave me some insight into the horrible environmental impacts of the denim industry and, and wash houses and, and things like that. But um, so, yeah, it, it's I think there's still a huge lack of transparency when that happens. And only some companies take that extra step to go and visit every part of their supply chain. Yeah, and I think another reason could be when you are far from the production sites on the other side of the earth, it's very difficult to feel that market. So it's very difficult to have a direct feeling of the prices, the real prices of materials, the real prices of labors. It's all become so abstract. Plus, if you only have an FOB price, it's very easy to push. For instance, if you travel five times to Hong Kong per year, it's still possible you don't really know the real price of that denim per yard, but somehow after five times per year in the market, you look around, you feel everything. Somehow you build up a direct sense of the prices. So when you negotiate, you have a rough idea um, where you can push and how much you can push. However, if today, especially today, I think in many brands in, uh, in the brand's offices, the uh, designer's team or the purchasing team or the middle management, they don't have this chance to travel five times to cross half of the earth. It's not very possible. So they don't have this direct uh, sense or feeling about raw material prices. So when they, when they negotiate the final price, it's very easy to, to either push more, often push more, actually. Absolutely. And then you, when you think of the hypocrisy of having a a, tea, a designer, a whole team of designers flying out four or five times a year across the world and the cost of flying them, putting them in hotels, feeding them for however many weeks, because oftentimes I was there for one or two weeks. And then if you tally up that cost and add it to the cost of production, you know, those, those few cents that we were trying to negotiate make no sense at all. Yeah, and it doesn't make sense. Yeah. It doesn't make sense, but... Nobody really sits down and talks about that. It's just the way that business is passed on. I think it's being talked about now. I really do, especially now during pandemic. I think people are starting to realize. But pre-pandemic, it was just business as usual and no one thought otherwise. 
I am curious, and especially as an educator, how do you think this shift in terms of what parts of the production process and the development process brands were responsible for affected design curriculums and design schools in the U.S.? Well, maybe that's part of the conversation, too, is how the schools have been involved. Schools and media, because, you know, uh, we also have the onslaught of shows like Project Runway and other fashion shows that I think have become global entities. They're not just American anymore, but they certainly started here. And they put the the designer up at the forefront and, and really idolized them and made them the star without showing the the entire process and by that time we'd probably already lost transparency and highlight of the process but you know there was a time in new york when um you know pattern makers had apprentices and they were considered like one of the most important part of the process because without them you couldn't really do much and like um technical designers not so much because we didn't really need them because you have a pattern maker doing the patterns, you had the designer who was passing it off. And that interpersonal relationship, like the one-on-one where the, the designer would sit down with their team in the same way that it happens, I think still to this day in European uh, couture houses. But that might be the only place where it still happens on site, right? Because it has to be made. Mm-hmm. I believe that's one of the one of the regulations with certified couture is that it has to be made in, in France. So that's one of the only places where you still see the whole process happening in person, one to one, and without that, you lose a lot of the a lot of the the value. And and then the schools started pulling back from technical education. I feel very lucky because my school uh, really focused a lot on the technical. So we had a lot of sewing classes, a lot of pattern making, even grading. Um, even though it was like I think pad 1.0, which nobody uses anymore, but it was, you know, (laughs) the concept of grading. And um, that's really important. And I see so many interns that I've had over the years with no idea how to measure a garment. Uh, And that's interesting. There is a wide variety of approaches Mm. to to design. So I wouldn't say that there's one common curriculum in the schools. Mm. So certain schools like FIT, where I work, for example, um, that focuses a lot more on the technical side of design. Um, and then other schools focus more on the strictly design element. And then others are now starting to look at systems as an approach. So a lot of that has to do with sustainability um, and, and looking at alternative ways to solve the problem that the fashion industry has created. Um, but but I, I think design has has definitely evolved. Design education has definitely evolved from more technical, doing everything here, to training students to be uh, technical designers. You know, training them for the jobs that are available in the industry, which is what you're talking about: technical designers who are going to send their tech packs overseas. Um, and then back to design again, because that's, that's what's being asked for in the industry. Yeah. And I, I think like I was reflecting on this a couple of weeks ago too, because I don't have a design background at all. And, um, 
but a couple of weeks ago, I was cleaning out some some stuff in, at my grandparents' house, and I came across my grandmother. So in the Netherlands, and I came across these notebooks from my grandmother, and I opened them up, and um, they were actually her notebooks from school, from as a teenager, where she was taught. And she didn't go in, she has nothing to, my grandmother didn't work in the textile industry, has nothing to do with the textile industry, but at school was taught pattern making. And so in these notebooks were all of these patterns that she had made, you know, um, because at that time she was still making her own clothes. And so that doesn't necessarily speak to curriculum within design schools, but I think maybe just sort of general fluency within the population about an understanding of how how clothes were made. And, and it, it just made me think like, wow, that's just, that's just lost. Like I have, even me having worked, my, even having worked in the fashion industry now, my grandmother still probably know better, knows better how to make clothes than I do. Like if you put us down yeah. and said at a sewing machine and said, okay, make this shirt go, like yeah. she'd probably win the contest, you know? Right. <laughs> that's another topic that I think is really important and coincided with uh, the loss of domestic manufacturing is the loss of understanding of how to make things, even just to sew a button. You would be surprised at how many people I meet on a day, daily basis that are not in the industry um, that don't know how to sew a button on. And so think that their shirt is ruined, you know, because they, they can't. And that I think is, you know, either their grandmother never took them aside to teach them or their grandmother never taught their mother. And I shouldn't just say mother, mm -hmm. father as well. Because <laughs> to do it back then. Um, but yeah, there's been over the generations, there's been a lack of a loss of understanding of how things are made. And that translates to how much it costs, you know, the true cost mm -hmm. of making something. So if you sit there and watch somebody make a garment for you, you understand how much work goes into it. And of course, like we all know that making one piece of one thing is going to take a lot longer than mass manufacturing, but still there's that understanding of what mm -hmm. goes into it. And we, I think we now have evolved at least in America to believing that robots make our clothes, but also it's the only way I think to justify the low cost of something. If you have to mm -hmm. think about humans making your clothes and then paying $4.99 for a t-shirt or whatever the price is, how do you how do you actually justify that in your mind? So mm. thinking a robot did it makes it much easier to swallow. One of the reasons I found the fashion industry or garment manufacturing still attracts me uh, from some points. One of the reasons is it's still a very much... Why you haven't abandoned it completely? <laughs> <laughs> One of the reasons is it's still a quite a human-attached industry. Right. Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, as we look ahead, right? Because in the last... We've talked a little bit now. I mean, scratch the surface on the last 40 years. What, you know, the appeal was of moving production overseas, the sort of sparkling attractiveness or appeal of, you know, not really having to do the grunt work anymore and just getting this, this nice, easy to understand price back and the sort of loss of technical skills and knowledge that went along with that within the industry and also maybe more broadly within society and how that really 
inevitably will shape conversations around price and cost because there, you don't have as much oversight over over how something uh, how something is made and therefore how much it costs to make it. So it really all of this really begs the question, and I'm interested, Tara, in your perspective, especially because with your women's wear brand, you've been working quite a bit on this. But is the solution a return to local production? Should that be the goal? What do you think? I yeah. So I go back and forth with this one because I have my own. I have my own perspective for myself and for my brand and, and the ethos that I want to instill in the brand. But I don't necessarily think that that needs to be applied to every brand that exists, nor every brand that I work with. I think some, I think the reality of the industry now is that it's a global industry and that won't ever change. And, and I think we also need it to be a global industry, but it needs to be a much more transparent one. And there needs to be more of a collaborative effort between brands and manufacturers versus this competitive perspective mm-hmm. that we've seen. Uh, I, say, I think for the things, and I think this starts at the design level. And of course, I'm going to say that because my background is in design, but I think that anything can be designed. And I'm not just talking about like pen to paper or pencil to paper aesthetic of the, the, the products. I'm also talking about designing the supply chain and designing the solution. So, you know, I, I've worked with brands who have tried to get hand embroidery done in the United States and wanted to sell it at like a reasonable price point. And it's just not a skill set that we really have here. But there are countries that specialize in that and do it really, really well. And you can still pay a fair and living wage or even above that. And it makes sense in that country to manufacture. So I think you have to to look at the design, but also design accordingly. So I'll give you an example. The way I see the future of manufacturing, and I, I think it's also funny because if I walk into manufacturers in New York City, they look like manufacturing facilities did in China 20 or 30 years ago. You know, they haven't evolved because of lack of investment and because a lot of their money is going towards paying rent for, you know, for real estate and they can't invest in new technologies and, and, uh, and new machinery. And so it's really kind of sad to me that that is not the case and that there's no support Meanwhile, there are manufacturing facilities in the United States that are trying to do things differently, but they're not necessarily located in large hubs like New York or LA, because those are very expensive areas to have real estate and to Mm -hmm. have employees. Um, But one of the one of the areas that I've been looking at domestically is on demand manufacturing. And that is something that's really interesting to me. And I think from a sustainability, because we haven't talked about that a lot, but the brand that mm-hmm. I develop is entirely focused on sustainable manufacturing and materials. And that's really important to me. And, and looking at preventing waste in the fashion industry and not just resolving the issue of waste, but preventing it is really important. And so this domestic manufacturer will only produce once a garment has sold versus producing a lot of garments and then trying to sell them, you know? 
And then you end up in this like discount area. I don't think that's a solution for everything. I think there are certain product categories that can be manufactured on a mass scale and it makes a lot of sense. But I don't think that that needs to be, a, I don't think it's a one size fits all solution. And those solutions need to be more tailor made. We also have to start making less product. I like this idea of, okay, maybe we don't return to local production, especially I think that would be unethical as given now the sort of number of people worldwide who um, rely on this for their livelihood, whether those livelihoods are dignified or, or, or whether they receive living wages or not. I mean, we, we kind of are where we are. Maybe we do need sort of within brands or maybe within society on a more general level, even more fluency and understanding of how things are made, but not so that we can make them ourselves or make them at home, but so that we can really be deliberate and considered in terms of thinking what we want to make and where. Like I, I know in, in our previous conversations, Tara, you described situations too, where you were sending products to one country where they just didn't have the skills or expertise to be made there. And it would have made a lot more sense to send them to a different country. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a, it, it really has to be an education of what the global supply chain looks like. And I, I totally agree with you with, you know, the fashion industry has this responsibility now that we've created uh, to take care of the people who are working on it. Let's take Bangladesh as an example and uh, the Rana Plaza collapse, you know, and, and right after that, a lot of fashion companies decided to boycott manufacturing in Bangladesh because they were in an uproar as if they didn't know what was happening before. And if they didn't know, that's on them. It's their responsibility to have known how, how manufacturing was being operated but boycotting is not the answer because we are we now have human beings who are entirely dependent on this um, unrealistic supply chain, even if it is. And like you said, Kim, it, it's it's not a living wage. And, and this plagues me to this day because I don't have a solution. But I know that as a conglomerate, the industry can come up with a solution to help elevate these skills that these workers have now developed for the sake of the industry, um, despite not being paid a reasonable wage for mm -hmm. it. Uh, but we can't just boycott these countries or stop working with them because then what happens, right? And a, a large portion of the GDP of Bangladesh is in the garment textile manufacturing, and we can't just walk away. And that's just one country of many that are reliant on mass consumerism. Yeah. And that is a problem that the industry has created uh, and the industry is responsible to, to solve. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please don't be shy. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show. And finally, if you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our website homepage. Thanks for listening and see you next week.